0: What's up everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell and Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact Cordell, Cordell Cordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Elliot Kotick.
1: If I do something that I know creates really real value, that people can really use, that will better their lives then that will be sold and that will be bought and that will create a viable business. So no matter whether you're thinking of it from a philanthropic mindset or from just a pure business mindset, companies that are good will do good.
0: This is another episode of our innovation and leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Now, before we jump into the show, I want to cover a couple of things. First, I'm really excited to announce our first sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Intel. On Thursday, Cinco de Mayo, please check out World Password Day that Intel is helping to promote. The website is passwordday.org. Second, please consider getting involved with a charity our founder started called Child Rescue that's helping build an aftercare orphanage for child sex trafficking survivors in Cusco, Peru. There's details in the Child Rescue tab from the menu on our site. And last, we have a new free program coming out that teaches entrepreneurs the techniques and the legal checklists that our instructors have used to raise tens of millions of dollars for other companies. If you want early access to the free program, please sign up for free at iCollective.co/fundraise. Again, iCollective.co/fundraise. So, with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Elliot, thanks for being on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So, I won't ask you the question of tell us what you do, because I know it's like a really long list. And, um, I think what we should start with is, uh, let, let's talk about, um, some of the businesses that you're building that are making the world better. Um, and, uh, and let's start with, with the, the collaboratives that you're a part of.
1: Yep. Great. Um, so I, I like, I like what you said, like in terms of not starting with asking someone what they do, I think we all do that when we get together at conferences and other things. We find ourselves in line talking to people. And one of the first things we say is, hey, what's your name? How you doing? What? So what do you do? And, in, and I find that that can really separate people because depending on what stage they're at and what level they're at in their company, um, it brings with it different baggage. So I was at a conference recently where you weren't allowed to ask that. You had to ask, what are you passionate about? Because it doesn't matter what kind of status anyone holds, everybody's passionate about something. And uniting people around their passions is something that I fully uh, am, am, am consumed by at the moment. And that's why these collaboratives have kind of come together. It's because they're fueled by passion. Um, the first is a purpose collaborative, uh, which was uh, initiated by Carol Cohn. And Carol's this amazing force of nature. She's considered the mother of cause marketing. She was responsible for things like the Reebok Human Rights Awards. And she's just an incredible um, bundle of energy. And she started her own firm, sold it to Omnicom, I think. Uh, That was Cone Communications, then started up the cause marketing division at Edelman and now has gone back out on her own. And she brought together these 20 companies initially, uh, mine mine included, which is the, the Nation of Artists. And these 20 companies each are really good at their particular discipline, whether it's digital branding or uh, millennial advising or uh, PR services or legal services or building websites and uh impact reporting, companies like Imperative and Inward Point who do these incredible reports. Um, So all these companies that together can really create something meaningful from conception to completion and campaigns and beyond. And what's cool about it is that then we can present to a client a range of options that, yes, they can get their generic or general idea and some kind of starting point, but as a collaborative or as a collective, we can actually create something truly impactful and sustainable if they want that and do it as one entity presenting to them instead of them having to find services all over the place. And But the whole thing is that each of us and us together, we're all united by a desire to change the world for the better, to create impact and lasting impact. And so, uh, so that's Purpose Collaborative, which I'm is essentially a creative collaborative. And then the other collaborative that I'm a part of is something that's only getting started now. In fact, we're we're going through the UX and the rebranding at the moment, and it's called Health Effect. And Health Effect aims to introduce independent med tech, medical and technology innovators with healthcare influencers, ranging from patients to caretakers, to physicians, from hospital administrators to people who do legal work for healthcare companies, so basically different stakeholders within the healthcare industry, so that unlike traditional VC where you raise some capital and they put a person on your board who may not really understand the industry you're in but understands the business that you have, um, this in, ensures that you build a community of advisors around you who all have specific experience um, in and around the journey that your company needs to take in order to reach the market and be successful. And so that's been also a very exciting thing because it's set up to have both an impact in terms of the devices and delivery systems and drugs and other things that it might generate that could help people, but also to have a social impact benefit that people who are the influencers can even choose just to be a mentor or an advisor and to chip their normal fee into a social impact fund. Uh, So that's been pretty exciting to start generating as well.
0: You know, I I feel like we could do a whole show on each of these, let alone, you know, documentaries with Zach Galifianakis and the other things we're going to talk about today. But, um, you know, at the Purpose Collaborative, what I think is fascinating, I'm you know, people know that I'm a bit obsessed with like the – IDEO, design thinking, the D school at Stanford about, you know, get as many different kinds of experts to weigh in on your subject as you can to break the group think or like, uh, Stephen Johnson's book, um, where good ideas come from about like the slow hunch, but you need to bump into a bunch of other ideas to really make the breakthrough. Yeah, And so, you know, it, it is such a, uh, an interesting set of experts that you guys have here where you've got the, you know, the, (laughs) the white collar top of the world law firms, Greenberg, Tarag, and then you've got a VR firm and you've got, you know, these, um, marketing people who help like the Khan Academy and these big organizations, but then you've got the giving back fund where someone can actually, you know, skip the headache of starting their own five, one C three, which having been through it, I can say I, I might, I might've been interested in that. Um, and, and fast track getting out there to helping, um, in your mind, when you think about like some of the stand-up members of this group, who, who are who are some of the ones that, that you were really excited to, to be able to partner with or, or some things they've done?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it's about what complementary practices do they have to my own. And so when I started looking at the Purpose Collaborative, I was excited about companies like BBMG and Inward Point and Imperative who do da- data reporting right, or data reporting and who come up with strategy around data. And the reason why I find that exciting is from a marketing perspective and from a campaign perspective and even from a content perspective, it used to be enough. If you were a charitably minded person or philanthropically minded person, you would have some sort of um, symbol of giving that was associated with your product. So let's say, for example, that that started with things like Wheaties, you know, Doug Flutie, his Wheaties boxes or Flutie Flakes or whatever they're called, where when you buy a box of something or buy a tube of something, that entity gives 50 cents or a dollar or something to some charity. And them stating that on the box used to be enough for you to that used to be enough for you to say okay cool I want to work with this company or I want to buy this company's products so you used to just be able to say good then it shifted to show good I want to see you giving this thing this money building this house um, delivering this food build, uh, you know replacing this infrastructure whatever it was I want to see you doing that so people started generating photos and content around the giving and around the impact they were making. And certainly that was something that we were very much a part of with some of the content I produced, both with Nation of Artists and with Not Impossible. But what I'm finding now is that there's a real demand, and we're seeing it in the nonprofit space, but also starting to creep into the corporate space, where you have to prove good. It's not enough to say good, it's not enough to show good. You really have to prove good. So you have to have stories that are backed by numbers, and you have to. Ha- and if you're presenting numbers to um, academics or to other philanthropic institutions, you have to back it up with stories so that you can, you can appeal to both hearts and minds. And I think that that's one of the most important transitions that we're facing as a world is that because of our level of connectivity, because of our level of social engagement, we're wanting everything to be much more transparent and if you can't prove that you're doing good with the entity you created for that purpose, then perhaps you're not the best person to be in that business or you should join another group because we're finding it now with Wounded Warrior being scrutinized on the on the nonprofit side or on the for-profit side, people like Tom's getting early criticism and wanting to, people wanting to see what kind of shoes they were giving and all these things that had to be addressed as part of the growing pains of this for-good marketplace. And so we really do – so for me, like the most exciting kind of potential collaborators are people who can take data from the projects that I'm initiating and from the campaigns that I'm generating and actually prove to me that we created something lasting, sustainable, and truly impactful.
0: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) You know, um, it's fun to, um, you know, you look at – for me – I'm really excited because that level of proof can give consumers the confidence to want to support organizations rather than the skepticism. You know, my, my biggest uh, complaint about the attitudes we have formed about the nonprofit world is this idea that you shouldn't, you shouldn't make any money if you're doing good. And as a result, you know, the nonprofit sector typically can't attract the best talent because of the type of negativity it'll generate to pay them what a for-profit company would pay them. Um, and so this idea of rather than doing like the, you know, the years or decades of work that it would take to reprogram the Western mindset that it's okay for people to, you know, make an equal wage, whether it's (laughs) doing good or just making money. Um, we kind of get to skip all that and just have the for-profit business do the good. Um, which has, a a, a potential ability to spin up so far when there's, you know, when everybody can pay the mortgage to, to the degree they feel like they're worth, but still improve lives. Um, it, uh, it seems pretty exciting what the possibilities can be.
1: And there's a hundred levels to that. I mean, the, the thing is that with the work we were doing at Not Impossible, what it really stood for in terms of the earliest form of it, which is, uh, so Project Daniel, for example, so we sent a team of four people to the Sudan with 3D printers and they 3D printed a limb for a boy who'd had both his arms blown off. And he was able to feed himself for the first time in two years. A group of locals were trained on how to use the equipment and all the equipment stayed there. Intel and Apart, uh, two companies, paid for that project to happen, and all, which meant that all the equipment could stay there. And then the content that was generated from that, the storytelling aspect, was able to be broadcast to a very wide audience that was able to amplify that story. And what it meant for Intel and Press Apart is that they were then able to use that content to attract talent to their firms, to increase employee morale at those firms and the marketing people responsible for it because it was not a corporate social responsibility initiative. It wasn't a corporate citizenship initiative. It was a marketing initiative. So their marketing departments are producing so much product advertisements every year, and they have to, to show what their chips can do, what kind of capacity they have, how they can be integrated in things. But if you just take one of those product ads, and you take the budget from one of those product ads, and apply it to a program with social purpose, you might find that you get as many or more eyeballs on your company on your company and increase the positioning of your company in the marketplace by doing that one for good project. And if that one for good project can generate awards and attention, then it encourages other marketing departments to go outside their usual comfort zones. And what I always used to tell them and what I like to tell them was, look, you're going to spend this money anyway, right? so let's say it's a couple of hundred thousand dollars or $150,000 or whatever it is around one of these commercials. Like why not instead of training actors to learn their lines, work with real people, train them how to use a computer instead of buying props and costumes. Why not have them have new infrastructure, whether it is computers, laptops, tablets or tablets, or whatever. Um, and instead of building sets, you go to real places and catering's catering, people got to eat. And but what you have is you're able to build something around a real story, changing the lives of real people using the products that you want us to use. So it's a real life scenario of us using your products, and then you can even revisit it a year from now. And if it happens to have an ongoing and lasting benefit, that's even that's even more amazing. Because what would normally happen from a commercial is that that stuff that you bought would go back to Nordstroms or Saks go back on shelves, it goes on people's desks as souvenirs of that production, and it doesn't have a follow-on or a follow-through. And so what you're doing is you're just opening up the possibilities. Um, So I don't see there to be any reason why a for-good company, even just on their marketing side, couldn't be engaged in for-good activities. And I truly believe at the macro level that a company that is doing good doesn't need to declare itself as doing good. And this is you know, something that is really at the core of capitalism, not in the way that it's been corrupted these days. But really what it is, is if I'm providing something that's of value to people, then I can build a business around that. And that means if I'm providing a personal computer that enables people to be connected to each other, then actually I'm providing a service that enables people to live their lives in different ways. Or if I'm generating some other tool or whatever it is, if I do something that I know creates really real value, that people can really use that will better their lives, then that will be sold and that will be bought and that will create a viable business. So no matter whether you're thinking of it from a philanthropic mindset or from just a pure business mindset, companies that are good will do good.
0: Yeah. You know, um, there's, there's also this thing too, where, a project like that, and, and we'll post the video. Um, anybody, you know, listen to this, driving to work or something, come to Elliot's page on Ideation Collective and uh, we'll put that video, Daniel's story, up there. And, like, it's a real, like, tug on your heartstrings kind of thing. Um, it, like, the kind of emotions that a video like that can, can create are not the kind of things that the rest of the regular marketing department can create. Like, if you're trying to anchor... A potential customer to caring about your brand. There's a there's a an emotional connection that that type of um, content creates that no amount of sets and and gizmos can do on their own.
1: Yeah, or if they can, they, it just costs so much more than the genuine article. And and so that's the thing, right? It's like you can do this. Like everyone can do this. Everyone has a budget for some sort of amplification of whatever they're creating. And if you find a natural fit for that product or for your service and can show it being used and utilized in a truly engaging and sincere way, um, I think that's the best kind of marketing there is.
0: You know, for me, I, I remember when we first talked about this story a few weeks ago, the first time, um, I thought it was super cool, but the part that I felt is like the jet fuel in the whole story to me is leaving it behind and that like a limb a week start was being printed after you guys left. Um, Yeah. Whose idea was it to like not bring the stuff home with you, not bring the 3d printers home from Africa?
1: It was always the objective. Um, The objective was what can we do for this doctor and this boy? And if possible like and then and then the minimum target was this project will be a success if Daniel feeds himself like that's it you one this project will be a greater success if other people learn how to put these limbs together and can do it again so it has two times the impact and then the real beauty of it is not so much that they were able to continue to do it, and you know they. We knew because, given how remote they were, there was never a, there was never going to be kind of inherent sustainability in that project, given where they're located. Um, but if you can just spark that fire in other people, then you can show that nothing is really too overwhelming to address. We all get kind of caught up with these big big spots, big advertising, big philanthropic videos where you see thousands of people being helped, hundreds of thousands of people getting treatment. Um, and we know that that's not for everybody. That's for very large institutions, very large philanthropic organizations, the UN, the World Health Organization, places like that, Bill and Melinda Gates, etc. But what we were able to kind of capitalize on is just if a couple of people want to help one person and they come up with a solution that is transferable or downloadable or somehow otherwise accessible, then just helping one person is enough to get the ball rolling. Because then it shows that other people can do that too. And so while everyone, you know, everyone can, it just shows that, you know, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something is a really true adage. I think it's credited to Ronald Reagan, but it's like, you know, it does seem overwhelming at times. Like there are so many big issues and big problems. But if we focus on the micro, just the one story, the one person you want to help, then by helping that one person, you can show the way and pave the way for other people to be similarly inspired and similarly engaged to help one person in their community too.
0: I love it. You know, um, our, our filmers, um, the director of our film uh, digital production side for Child Rescue is just heading down to Peru for the aftercare orphanage that we're expanding down there. And, you know, I'm going to butcher the quote, but I believe it's a Mother Teresa quote about, when I see the many, I do not help. When I see the one, I help.
1: Yeah. And And there's a psychological phenomenon behind that too. When people try and raise money around initiatives to say, hey, we're going to go feed 3,000 people in X village somewhere, it's a lot harder a proposition for someone to chip in some money because they don't know how much impact they personally are going to have. Whereas if you say, hey, there's this girl Sarah and she needs a surgery and it's going to take $3,000 and um, I would love it if you'd be able to contribute just a little bit to help her get that surgery, then you feel a sense of ownership in that story and you're much more likely to give. And I think that that's, True. I think people need to feel like they've got a proprietary sense that they've got a story they can attach to a person they can impact, so that they feel like they're playing a significant role rather than just kind of a a trivial micro role in 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 trying to address a problem or a situation.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, um, I uh, I really want to talk more about a subject you just brought up of accessibility. You know, um when we were talking before and I was telling you, I love the Peter Diamontes quote about if you want to make a billion dollars, how about helping a billion people kind of thing. And um it's fascinating how there are these n- new and better ways to create massive accessibility. Um do you want to talk about I mean you're you've been involved in these like technologies for humanity things like this do you want to talk about your own philosophy before behind that and what you've discovered over time or, or just any thoughts on that subject of accessibility?
1: Yeah I mean I, I just think that there's always an opportunity for accessibility and we kind of have a it's, it's one of these words that I think falls under disability too often hmm. and um, and so but what I all I really mean is if you're producing something, whether it's an app or whether it's a product or whatever it is, or a story, why not go that little extra step to make sure someone who normally can't reach it can now reach it? Now, for example, if you're creating a book that you know is only going to be sold in certain territories, then there's probably no harm in giving it away for free to kids in other territories that are normally not going to buy it. So why not license it for free to to an education app like Libraries for All? Uh, for those other territories, or if you're producing uh, some medication that you know is going to work well in certain places, in certain settings, and you know you're going to make a load of money off it in the Western world, why not also have a giving program in places that normally wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it? Um, Why not make an app accessible to the hearing impaired or the sight impaired if you can? There are very small things you can do that may not add any cost, but expand the audience reach and expand the level of accessibility of whatever it is you're creating. So when you're thinking about creating anything and whatever format it is and however it's distributed, think about the people that might not normally have access to it. Because if it can make your life more convenient whether it's a cell phone or an app or whatever, like imagine what it can do for someone whose life is not normally touched by those things. Imagine how much more impact it can have with someone who is either physically disabled or uh, financially challenged or who lives in a region, a geographical region that normally doesn't have access to these tools, whether they're for education, medication, or any other thing. Yeah. You know
0: it's funny because i've i've got these friends from such different worlds the the venture capital world and back from my days at citigroup on mergers and acquisitions team right the very like kind of wall Streeter type of uh go for the gold where the gold is more money right yeah. and yeah. then i've got all the like my bleeding heart nonprofit friends and staff and you know what i mean like money is money is the root of all evil kind of people in my life um and uh so i love seeing it married um when you think about people that you feel like are setting a good example of, of doing this in a big way, like who, who do you feel like the leaders are? Who do you feel like you want to be more like?
1: Well, that's interesting that you say that. It's like in terms of like who we should take a leap from, I think it's the millennials and Gen Zers who are getting a bad rap for being fickle. But, and who are going like moving jobs too quickly and all this other stuff that they've been criticized for. But what they're really doing is having us address these fundamental needs. Because if you've got the people that are either or, they're either Wall Streeters or they're bleeding-heart liberals, that's a massive chasm to overcome, and that's ridiculous. You know, that, and that is how we viewed things until now, whereas what millennials have done is they've demanded from a Wall Street job that it also has a social conscience or uh, they've demanded from a non-profit that it also has a more business focus. So what millennials are forcing us to do, and I count millennials, Gen Zers, and aspirationals, i.e. anyone of any age who has these same beliefs, um, not age-specific, because I think that those sorts of pressures on us to be more conscious, and um, whether you call it conscious capitalism or whatever you want to call it, Um, that's what's forcing us to be more intuitive as a business, more responsive to the customers, more responsive to the people on the planet. And I think that it's those businesses that are going to succeed and I'm hopeful that there's going to come a day when we don't just choose between two companies on the basis of whether one of them is doing good and the other one isn't, but we choose between them because one of them is doing good for people with cancer and the other one's doing good for people with low sight. And we have a personal passion around one of those issues, so we choose the product that best reflects our own personal issues. But they're all doing good in their own way. And so I think that that's probably what I've found being really interesting. And then there's something that you said before in terms of leaders and other people, and you're talking about Peter Diamandis, but of course like Tony Shea from Zappos. Um, And what I like about Tony is this idea, again, it's about collaboration, And what it is, is it's this collisionable hours concept, is that he was trying to attract businesses to come relocate to downtown Vegas. But even if they didn't want to relocate fully from California or if it didn't make sense for them to relocate from New York or Chicago or Minnesota or Nashville or anywhere, what he wanted them to do was spend time on the campus in downtown Vegas, a little bit of time, didn't matter how long, but something that he could essentially measure as an hour or a collisionable hour because what happens is if you're on campus with other people and you hold certain things to be true and have ideas about things then even as you're ordering a coffee in the morning or you know thanking the person who held the door open for you or riding in an elevator with someone all those moments provide opportunities for idea exchanges and so if you can create a community where people are talking and bumping into each other, whether it's social or formal or professional, you're enabling that exchange of information and the exchange of ideas. So I think that that is a really valuable concept and kind of comes back to this kind of collaborative mindset where I, when I look at things now and when I look at, okay, I want to address I work backwards instead of waiting for a client to come to me and say I want this piece of content or I want to capture this moment that we're creating I'd rather go out create an idea around something I believe is important for example removing arsenic from the water in Bangladesh that's uh, you know it's killing 150,000 people at a time and at a time when we can take arsenic out of water so what's yeah. the you know, so so coming up with a campaign around that, which I've done, um, calling up and engaging with uh, the US Chamber of Commerce, who reached out to me early on, reaching out to water innovators who have this technology available to them, contacting like entrepreneurs who are setting up microsystems around the provision of clean water, talking to nonprofits who can aid in the sustainability, talking to for-profits who have interest in the area, and really, just banding together a group of individual entities who together can actually cause something to change. And if I can tell those stories well, then I can benefit all those. Ent- then all those entities can benefit as a result of that storytelling. But more importantly than that, you can say, "I, Company X, I, Nonprofit B, I, Person Z, and saved uh, these lives and enabled these people to live more fully," and. I just like, I don't think in, in this world where so many problems are inherently solvable, we shouldn't be, you know, delaying our efforts. Um, yeah. should be matching. We should just be finding and matching them and seeing who these right collaborative and collisionable people are that can give effect to them.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe it's my like natural inclination to avoid real work that I just want to hang out with people. But I, lo- I love the idea of get more people together and <laughs> and have a party um yeah, you know someone
1: has to run it from there
0: right, <laughs> right? uh we need to get one of those organized people who can be at appointments on time to do that um okay i want to ask you more about that but first we're going to take a quick break to hear about our sponsor and then come right back today's episode is brought to you by intel and when they approached me about being a sponsor it was easy to say yes and not just because they're a 140 a billion dollar company in 2012, Intel created World Password Day to help make us all safer online, and they've been really successful with it. The first year, they graded over a million passwords, meaning they tested them and told you how long it would take before it could be cracked. And then they managed to get other big organizations like Dell and Microsoft to join the movement as well. Personally, I think this is something legitimately good for all innovators and entrepreneurs, since we're not just trying to protect our own companies and bank accounts, but most of us interact with our customers online at some point, And if they don't feel safe, it just makes that interaction harder. Something else I think is interesting has to do with how on the show we're always talking about how a good idea isn't enough and how innovators need to be unique in attracting people to what they're doing. I think these guys have done some things that the rest of us can learn from. I was actually there four years ago when they launched this idea with essentially an outdoor pop-up event downtown Manhattan at the Flatiron building. And it was interesting how they made it fun to care if your password was easy to crack or not. They had this big carnival game booth where they let people swing those big hammer things that you ring a bell and can win prizes. But there was a catch. The size of hammer you might get to use to try for the prizes went from the huge looking thing you're thinking of from a Popeye cartoon down to a regular household hammer, which was way harder. Uh, The way it got picked is because you went up to the booth and put in a password on the keyboard that's like your password and then it graded how long it would take someone to crack your password. Some of them were super long. Some of them were short. Basically, if it was really hard to crack your password, you got this huge hammer, which made it easy to win prizes. And if your password was super, super easy to crack, you got a tiny household hammer. Well, it, this attracted tons of people passing by because everyone was at the booth was laughing about either how bad their password was or some big linebacker size guy who's trying to ring the bell with a tiny hammer. After, after your turn, everybody got uh, a big thing of blue cotton candy uh, for free. And so there's all these people walking around with big smiles and blue cotton candy, and it really caught on and then caught on online. Uh, I'll post a video about it on today's interview page. The thing is, I'm not the most security conscious guy, and it actually worked on me. Uh, I started using passwords that were longer, a whole sentence with spaces in it, things like that. And this year, what the push is, is something right along with something the president just talked about in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. They usually call it multi-factor authentication. It's when you add like a fingerprint or a face scan or a text code, depending what your device will let you do, so that it's a password plus something else to keep your device safe and your information safe. Um, when my buddy was getting me to do this on my Gmail account, uh, Gmail calls it two-step verification. He used to be the network security guy for Stanford university. The thing that really put me over the top was when he was like, Jess, what is your liability and like, what's your reputation loss going to be? If you end up leaking sensitive client data, like it's one thing to lose your stuff, but what if you lose your client stuff because you didn't do something as simple as, as multi-factor authentication, which really sounds like a mouthful, but really works. Also, there's a funny celebrity that got involved this year. They're not letting anybody say who it is, but on Thursday, Cinco de Mayo, um, May 5th, they're going to be announcing it and putting out all the videos on passwordday.org. So check them out and support Intel for supporting the show. Now back to the interview. You know, it's funny you talk about Tony Shea. I think about his business partner, Amanda Slavin, with a um at, yeah. That that throws the catalyst week from uh for the downtown yeah, project, week. right? So sure. uh I remember when she had me down. Like I didn't know we were gonna go hang out at with Tony. Do you know what mean? Like one of the conditions <laughs> right?
1: You're gonna have drinks with him on the Friday night or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah.
0: And i am I'm fascinated by this um his level of humility. I mean, like, here's the guy, sells the company to Amazon for a billion dollars. He's, you know, um, he's got a serious cool factor in the entrepreneur community in general. And he like lets us all waltz through his apartment on the tour, you know, when they put us up there while he's having a meeting, you know, and like, uh, after, you know, their mini Ted talks kind of thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, he's just like hanging out. We all like went and watched some random show in a parking lot. (laughs) Some like fire breather person. Right. And he's just like one of the dudes in his t shirt you know yeah, what I mean? It's a,
1: it's a mixture of business, think, business and burning man.
0: Yeah. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't think he's a big deal. And, uh, I feel like really sets an example for that of like, um, he, you know, he could easily have the people he works with treat him like royalty and yeah, but, he doesn't. Yeah. And, and I think it sets such an example for so many of the up and comers of, um, who, who go through, you know, get to go to one of those catalyst weeks and, and again, kind of what you were talking about on the collisions, like I, I really like conferences. I'm a, if you can't tell, I'm a talker, right? So I was fascinated when we go to this week and there's so much time off during the day, right? And you just like, by accident, you end up seeing the people that you were doing the tour with and then you start talking to them. And I, I'm still hanging out, you know, I'm still trading emails with people back from when I went through forever ago.
1: That's right. Um, He's creating an environment for you to interact with. And he wanted you to give you the doubt time so that you could see what he'd created in downtown. He wants you to frequent those bars. He wants you to look at those restaurants. He wants you to take a lens on that. And what you're saying is actually just a bigger point about the human condition is that the people that create things that are meaningful and the people that have a security or are secure with their um, role as a leader and a thinker, um, they're not insecure If you look at the insecure people, insecure people are bosses. They're not leaders. Mm. Bosses are the ones who give commands, who bark orders, who blame other people. Um, Bosses are these people who sit at the top of something and wait for it to be done and talk about what they achieved in terms of I, not we. And then you've got leaders, right, which is a very different thing. And they both could be the person who founded the company, but the person who founded the company doesn't need to be a boss. You could be the person leading by example at the front of the pack, rallying the troops, identifying when other people have contributed to the benefit of that situation, who have crafted or really amplified the project that you're working on, people who use we, people who say let's go, um, not you go do this, people who acknowledge and credit others as a team, Um And so it's really these people that are secure in and of themselves and their abilities who know that they can come up with more ideas, who know that they can build more businesses, who don't feel threatened by what's coming next but feel excited by how that might work with what they do. They're not so
0: scared, right? They don't have that scarcity mindset of this is my only shot. I've got to keep it all for myself.
1: Exactly. And so you don't have that same greed because there seems to to those people and thankfully I find that more and more I find that I feel like I'm a part of this is that I feel like there's an abundance of ideas that I'm fortunate that I can see and connect these ideas and so I'm always seeing opportunities. So, me and one thing I've just recently initiated, which I absolutely am thriving on and love, is that I work really hard and I work really often and always end the day working, you know, um, after everyone else has gone to sleep. And what I do at the end of the day is I introduce people. So, I'm finding a lot of times I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm just thinking, oh, you need to meet someone, you need to meet this person or that person. Instead of me trying to cr- control that situation so that I can potentially benefit from it. I just make the introduction and allow it to happen. If those people genuinely enjoy you and what you do and see the value in what you do, they'll come back to you and bring you back into that. But really what you're doing is just advancing the cause for everybody, right? So if you can think about people who need to meet each other and introduce them at the end of the day, then you go to bed feeling like you're not just acting alone. You're part of a community that's actually causing things to change and shift and move forward. Um, and I've been in business with people who are like, have been greedy and, um, you know, and that gets really old really quickly because you can see that they're scared and protecting. Um, and, uh, whereas they really should be integrating and sharing in order to create a better culture, in order to create a better future, in order to convey and build loyalty and trust and employee morale and all these things that people want today in the places that they spend this amount of time in.
0: You know, I I really love what you said. I feel like I've got a bit of a soapbox lately against some of these time management strategies that have come out. You know, there's all these blog posts and books and stuff about how you can become an influencer and about how you can make sure your time is of most value to yourself. And inherently it's not necessarily a a bad concept except when it comes to like making the rest of the people in your life, not as real. And from my experience where I feel like generosity is a competitive advantage, like the, like I look at um, the people who have crazy Rolodexes um, who, who like, have job security in the sense of if this business fails, there's all sorts of people that would be- beg for them to come work with them. Mm-hmm. And it's inevitably the most generous people. Like the, the people who fit that category in my life are these like super like self forgetful, generous, like genuinely generous human beings. Um, and, and yet it's, it's almost counterintuitive by not looking out for number one, they're like extremely well taken care of.
1: Right. You'll never actually, it depends what your judgment of success is too. Um, Because those people will never necessarily want for anything because they'll find that if they need something and some of these people, like myself included, have trouble asking for help when you need something. But what you find is as soon as you do, all sorts of people come out and say, "I want to help. Like it would be my pleasure to help." I, you've introduced me to so many people and done <laughs> so many things. I just didn't think you needed it. I've been waiting for you. To say, <laughs> I've been waiting for you yeah. to say, "I want you." I want you to jump on board one of my projects, but you've never, you've never asked me. <laughs> you know, and so, so it's that sort of conditioning
0: yeah.
1: that we need to kind of fight against. It's it, because that's the thing. Is like those people. I'm sure you asked them who they are and what they think of themselves as and the joy people get when they tell you that they think of themselves as a connector, someone who puts people together and enables them to do great things together. The joy they get from doing that, the joy I get from doing yeah, that.
0: quality of life, huh?
1: Yeah. I mean, at first you're like, please don't be better friends with the person I'm introducing <laughs> you to I, want, I don't want you hanging out hanging out with me. Like that, like that wasn't meant to happen. Yeah. <laughs> But really, it gives you great pride and joy at the same yeah. time.
0: <laughs> I love it. Um, well, another thing I want to talk about today, um, I feel like there's a lot of people out there with a great idea, or maybe they even have a great product or a great service. Um, but but uh, so many people have not quite cracked the code on how to get people to find out about it, how to tell the kind of stories that turn into a big magnet for people to find out you've got something awesome. Um, I'd love for you to talk about your storytelling and specifically uh, working with influencers. And, and you know, let, let's put a plug for, for your doc that comes out here in April. Um, do you want to talk about uh, you want to talk about working with Mimi and Zach?
1: Yeah. So so I produced a documentary called Queen Mimi. Uh, which is being launched in theaters mid-April, um, I think in like 10 states or so. So don't think it's a documentary, but it's still coming out in um, some pretty incredible places. Like it's going to be shown in Minnesota and different parts of California and Idaho, Boise, Idaho, and in Michigan and uh, Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Addison, Illinois, and so and Wisconsin. And it's, what's cool about it is that it's the story of this woman Mimi, her real name's Marie Haste, and Marie um, became homeless in her 50s. And she spent the next 20 years on the streets living in doorways and parking lots, etc. And then after that, um, on a particularly stormy night, this laundromat owner let her sleep inside his laundromat. And unbeknownst to him at the time, she would then stay there for the next 20 years So she's been living in this laundromat, sleeping on a garden chair in between two rows of washer and dryers um, for 20 years. And she started doing people's laundry and establishing a community for herself. And even though she was technically homeless, she really found herself a community and her positivity of spirit to keep going every day and leave the past behind and focus on the future. Um, Was so uh, attractive to a lot of people, and there were some young actors who would be going out on auditions and things. And so they yeah, this is in Santa Monica, right? In Santa Monica, in Los Angeles. Yeah, it probably pretty much could only happen in LA. (laughs) And so there were these young actors running around, and uh, they would leave their laundry with Mimi. And over time, some of those actors became quite well known, became super famous. And one of them, as you mentioned, was Zach Galifianakis, who's the star of the Hangover series, amongst other things, a comedian. And you know, when they took the wall phone, the payphone out of the laundromat, Zach got her a cell phone so that they could stay in touch, and so that she could stay in touch with her other friends. And then he started sending limos when he had film premieres, and so that she could go to the, go to the premier parties and and enjoy the food and the entertainment and it's like um, it was just a genuine friendship that emerged and what's really great about this particular documentary is just that it changes it changes the table on how we kind of consider and view homelessness it's not a heavy film about homelessness but what it does is, When we're walking down the street, we're confronted by homelessness. Sometimes we'll put, you know, a dollar or 50 cents or throw our change into someone's basket or sometimes we'll just cross the street if we're feeling a little bit afraid or if it's dark. Um, But very rarely do we engage and sit and ask the person their story. And you can imagine how many amazing stories there are um, out there. But by actually just bringing a camera and having those conversations, And putting this person's story up on screen, you go from not engaging with the homeless person on the street to paying to have an experience where you're hearing the wisdom espoused by this person. And it completely just changes your personal narrative. And so hopefully what it then does, because the very nature of entertainment, is that it then allows you to reconsider what relationships you have to the people around you, the people who who you pass by every day. And in its own little way, it kind of just changes that conversation, which I think is, is fantastic. And in a non-aggressive way, the film is really cute. It's really, um, it's really just a pleasing film about the relationships between this woman who is now 91 years old, who's lived this really incredible life, um, and her kind of association with people that are super, super successful, who live you know in the top one percent of the one percent um but who consider her a friend and who look out for her um and that spirit of community is pretty great
0: that's awesome well we're we're gonna put links to that on your page on the site um and uh excited to you know you guys have had such great response in the film festivals and that be would be exciting to see how the wider audiences uh fall in love with mimi also huh yeah absolutely um you know, we like to ask guests uh, some standard questions, uh, and, and so we can compare notes across all of them. But in your mind, what are some of the best books that innovators or, or entrepreneurs could be reading right now?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question because I'm not a book reader. I, I tend to do things in chunks. Like, and so I, when I get on a plane, I I have the TED app on mm. my phone. And it enables you to download the videos when you have a Wi-Fi connection or some of them you can actually just download the audio. And so if I don't think there's anything I want to watch on the plane or if I can't be bothered working on my computer, I'll just lean back and listen to TED Talks on di- different issues. It allows you to search by category too. So often I, I do search on based on innovation and creativity and, um, and things of that nature um, and have you know, read, uh, listen to and watch some of the most incredible people talk about things in such a compelling way that it helps me think about things. The other thing I have on my phone is the uh, uh, app for Fast Company, um, which is uh, obviously a magazine but I think that their app is really well done and also has really great content around uh, freeing up yourself for productivity, how creative people think. Um, again, I'm not ever one who lacks for ideas. Um, so, so that side of me has never really been broken. In fact, what I, what I find is that if I switch off and look at something that's very general entertainment, which would other people might consider to be a guilty pleasure, um, is to throw on something like a Top Chef or some reality show where I see people competing around something that is skills-based, that sometimes helps gives me like an idea um, for, how, for, for how we could make something in the for-good space more consumer-friendly or uh, more active or more engaging because reality TV, for all it's said and done, um, is really good at amplifying itself. And so you can sometimes pick up clues from the least likely places by just getting outside and playing with kids and seeing how they look at the world. Um, it's always been fascinating to me but they have a complete cycle. They don't take anything for granted and, and this is something that I found and even was the thing that I hosted at South by Southwest last week where I had kid innovators, uh, so people who were teenagers who didn't know the status quo. One of them ended up building, Siobhan Banerjee ended up building a, a printer that uh, prints in Braille out of, <laughs> I watched out, that video. Yeah, out of his Lego kit. And so it costs about 350 bucks for this EV3 system. And uh, the traditional Braille printer on the market is $2,000. Um, there are stories that a lot of people know about, like Jack Draker and others. And then I thought, well, maybe it's only recently that kids have been able to do this because they are now got tools available to them that were never available to consumers before. They were only kind of behind closed doors at Boeing and GE and apple and microsoft and academic institutions but then when i dug a little bit further and looked on you know in history at like the youngest innovators ever you realize that you know westinghouse who created this i think the steam engine um did so in his early teens that alexander graham bell who who created the telephone created that at age 18. the guy who created the trampoline created that at 16 you know Benjamin Franklin was creating like flippers and other things at age twelve. The person who created the popsicle did it at age four. You know this has always been the case where people who look at things without the stigma associated with the way we've always done them uh, can look at it with fresh eyes can put things together that haven't been put together before and not kind of have a predisposition to it not working but seeing what happens when it does um and so I just find that that. That is fascinating. So if you're looking for innovators and looking for what to read, I say sometimes maybe better to put down the book and go out to a park with your you know, kids or your nephews or observe. your cousins or something and just observe what's going on and how people relate to things.
0: That's great. You know, um, there's certainly a lot of material from IDEO about, you know, they call that like intense observation being an anthropologist and really yeah. observing humans intensely, right?
1: Yeah, and, and you say that, like you mentioned IDEO earlier, and we didn't talk about this, but that was basically what I did with uh, with Frank, uh, the guy who, who we made um, 140, which was the first ever user-generated feature film using um, social media. And it was 140 people signed up using Twitter in 140 locations, and they each filmed 140 seconds of footage. And the idea there is that... Um, it's a crowd. It's, sometimes it's interesting when you bring a crowd together and what happens, <laughs> what, sort of, what sort of themes evolve as themes that we're all concerned with. It's family, it's environment, it's humor, it's whatever. And then similarly when we did Not Impossible, again it was about the crowd. When we were trying to work out what to take to Sudan, we brought in the guy who created the first ever 3D printed robotic hand, Richard Van Ars from South Africa, then added a, a former IDEO entrepreneur in residence plus a neuroscientist from New York, plus a engineer, plus a 3D printer company owner, plus um, a commercials producer and an Oscar-nominated filmmaker and a dog. You've, it's always good to have a pet around. <laughs> and, and so you've got all these perspectives coming together because – Yes, something has to be functional, but it also has to be beautiful if you want it to be adopted widely, because people don't want to be wearing or implementing something ugly. Um, So design is a huge factor to consider. And then sometimes you just need a cheerleader who may not be like the person with the math skill or the engineering skill, but who keeps everyone to tasks and engages them and moves that project forward. And so there's so many skill sets that come together to actually crowd solve something, and that's something that, you know, we in the spirit of collaboration that businesses can do together or individuals can do together.
0: Yeah. Well, um, you know, for people who want to get your brain on helping them figure this out for their company, is LinkedIn the best way for them to reach out to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely the easiest. And there's quite a few of my projects, you know, float, floating down the side of the page for that. Um, but yeah, you can just contact me at Elliot Kotech on LinkedIn. That'd be great.
0: That's great. And we'll put the link on your ideation collective page too. You know, I think there are a lot of businesses that are realizing this is the wave. This is the way you engage millennials. And, uh, obviously having somebody with your Rolodex and experience could help them with that. Um, another thing we are, we're always asking guests is for our charity, for child rescue, getting people more involved in, um, helping rescue kids from child sex trafficking and preventing it in the first place. What what kind of advice would you have for us if you were us trying to work on that issue?
1: Yeah, so sometimes uh, we, we used to be, um, generationally, we used to try and get people on board for life. So if it was Rotary or ASPCA or the Red Cross, we'd want someone to go back every year at the end of the year and write a check. Um, now I think the mindset is much more... Today, I'm going to back a children's charity. Tomorrow, I'm going to back an ALS initiative. The day after that, I'm going to back whatever else comes in my inbox. And so I think it's just constantly having something, constantly sending out stories about the work you're doing and how it actually is making an impact in people's lives, Um, but sharing that on an ongoing basis with a call to action each time. So, Because it's not so much that we'll save it up for the end of the year and then write a check. I think we're much more inclined to text or commit or in the moment. And so we'll, we're essentially, a friend of mine started a company about 10 years ago called Armchair Revolutionary, and it never quite took off, but I thought the philosophy behind it is perfect So we're much more likely to make micro donations on a daily basis than we are to try and save it all up and commit to something later um, in this environment. So if you populate, um, whether it's social media or You send something out every month or so just to keep the stakeholders engaged and to attract new people to the stories you're telling. I think that with a call to action that is actionable in that moment um, and there are definitely people that do that in a very innovative way that doesn't require much sign-up. It's just a couple of clicks and you can donate or a text and you can donate um, or somehow otherwise get involved that isn't monetary. Um, I think that having that engagement where you're capitalizing on the moment uh, is much more important these days. That's great. Um,
0: you know, we, we've got mobile cause for the text to give. Um, I think you're right though, about the consistency, you know, and, and, uh, there's a lot of noise out there having people have those smaller opportunities, but having them repeatedly is a great idea. Um, when you think about, uh, Early in your career, maybe early in your life, who do you feel like set a really good example for you on how to treat others?
1: Um, you know, my family, uh, just hands down. Like it's, you know, my my dad was, was always engaged civically. He was never content just to do his work. He was always volunteering for something and uh, engaged with something and with a community group, a local group. And my mom was a school teacher um so she had that kind of spirit of education and that mindset of of teaching and bettering as well and then my grandparents as well just really uh, mindful people and uh you know we would never we would you know it was never really a consideration it was just you were just mindful and i, I think that that family environment that i grew up in and the community too like growing up in melbourne australia it you know you could just, you know, walk around, you know, the other street and find someone and play at the park. And um, I don't know, it just was all very much a, so a community of, of that. And and then later on, my mentor at Lee Strasberg, the guy who, who was my, like, main coach at uh, Lee Strasberg Theatre Institute, who taught me some really valuable lessons for how you think about yourself in relation to other people. What he said to me once, and I remember the first time I put up a scene in front of him, was I was pretty nervous because he was a very intense disciplinarian and really, you know, gave, assigned a lot of reading to his students and really was kind of uh, intimidating. People were scared of him. And I was new and was told that new people don't normally take his class because you've got to build up your confidence first. And he said to me, like, something really interesting about himself and about me. And he said, why do you care what I think? He's like, Listen, like he's like, you could win the Academy Award, right, for whatever, writing, acting, whatever, which means that you're judged by your peers as being the best in the world at this job at this moment. And tomorrow as you walk down the street, there's going to be a percentage of people who say you didn't deserve it. so he's like, it doesn't matter what other people think if you've done the work. Because if you've done the work, then you can defend it. It's only when you haven't done the work and people attack it that you can feel like you're on soft ground. But if you've made your choices and you've gone forward and you've presented those choices and committed to that behavior and other people can either accept it, they can love it, they can hate it, it's not up to you to make people like you Um, and nor should you really care if what you're doing is truthful and honest and sincere, because if you hold those things to be true, then you can defend them. Even if you've changed your mind a year or two later as to what you would have done in that moment, in that moment you believed in it. And that's really all that matters.
0: That's awesome. That's great advice. Well, um, Maybe we'll do one, one more question here and, and wrap it up for the show. You know, you look at whether it's your magazine, Beyond Cinema Magazine, which we'll have links to, or, you know, doing stuff with Clint Eastwood for the Nelson Mandela tribute, or these different things where you're working with A-list talent. And and obviously um, that, that brings a lot of attention and, and does a lot of the job of getting people to find out about what someone's doing. Um, do you have any advice about how people there's a lot of people that wish for those kind of connections to help whatever they're working on. Um, but who maybe don't take the actions to put themselves in the kind of environment where there's a high probability of that. Yeah. Can you talk at all about strategy of being in the kind of places where meeting people like that becomes a possibility?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's also that whatever stage of your career you're at, there are people who are at the similar stage in their career. So if you're trying to create something creative and you need young actors and you can't afford Zach and you can't afford Ben Affleck or whatever, right, that you can you, – there are so many people who want to act who can't act without your setting up that infrastructure for them. So people will do stuff for free or for the promise of deferred payment. Um, so if it's something creative, there's always people that are at the same level you're at who are supremely talented um, who you can hook up with now and keep working with. And then hopefully if anyone in your little group makes it, you bring the whole group together. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what I respect about Adam Sandler, no matter what you think about his movies, is that he's always brought his friends along for the ride, even when they've gone through phases of unpopularity. So whether it was David Spade or Rob Schneider or um, Chris Rock or whatever, like he continually, continuously, and Steve Buscemi, he continuously uses people from his community. And the same even with his friends who he hires on his production team. And uh, he's really built um, his community up with him and brought them along with him. And so there are people who do that. So I'd say like even if you need a publicist, um, but you can't afford someone who's really, you know, highly regarded um, and highly experienced. There are other people who are junior publicists at these big firms who want the opportunity to prove themselves and want a project to sink their teeth into in a major way. So just bear in mind that you can reach out, um, and we're so connected now that you can find people that are at your level in these other places um, who will build that thing with you. Um, If you do need to get a celebrity voice on something, um, if you feel like that's an absolute need, then there are ways to approach that that are uh, perhaps a little bit outside the box. And what that means is what do you stand for and what is it that if you're doing something that has purpose and meaning, then you should be able to attract um, a level of talent to it that normally wouldn't be able to be afforded um, because everyone's got their passion points And so don't identify one person. Like don't say it has to be Jennifer Connelly or it has to be Victoria Justice or it has to be Selena Gomez. Say it has to be someone who believes in what I believe in. It has to be someone who believes in early childhood education. And then look at all the different organizations that are part of that and look at all the borders of advisors and look at all the spokespeople. And if you reach out to enough of those people and are genuine in your pursuit, then someone will... Approach someone else on your behalf, or try and line up someone for you on your behalf. Um, But you've got to show that you're in it for the right reasons, and that what you're doing is going to be of a certain level of professionalism. Um, And uh, but I I think that that's true of just about everything. Like if you approach it with um, genuineness, and what you have is a story or a campaign or something that is truly compelling or unique or original or earnest. Um, when, and, and this is actually goes back to a principle that I have, and uh, which is the four P's. And what it is, is that if you're passionate about something, then that will help you define your purpose. And when you declare your purpose publicly, when you share it, then you'll find people. Because people will refer other people to you, or they'll just come straight direct to you after you've declared your purpose to be around a certain passion point. And once you have those people around you, then I truly believe that anything is possible.
0: I love it. It's kind of like generosity. Loyalty pays off over time, too. Absolutely. Well, really appreciate all the time you've, you've given us today and, uh, and the ideas uh, for us to start working towards. <laughs> thanks, Jess. Okay, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Before you go, my friends know about my total obsession with Mexican food, especially a shredded beef chimichanga or seared steak nachos. But this Cinco de Mayo, when you're enjoying some amazing tacos, remember to check out the new funny videos that we'll be launching on passwordday.org. Also, we hope you'll take the time to learn about the aftercare orphanage Child Rescue is helping build in Cusco, Peru at icollective.co slash childrescue. Now is the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during Red, White and Blue Savings at The Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than
1: ever with the best deals online and in-store. You can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on 1 gallon and $40 off 3 and 5 gallons for a limited time only at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.